Hello, fine folk of the motoring masses. Welcome to the latest episode of Witch Car Weekly. I'm Scott Newman, Associate Editor of Motor, filling in for regular host Dan Gardner, who is off being a movie star. Worry not, because I am joined by a couple of legends from Wheels, notably Deputy Editor Andy Enright. G'day. And staff journalist Cameron Kirby. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. So, on this week's episode, we'll be stepping behind the wheel of some racing cars. Look, Cam's already nodding in excitement. Very exciting news. Examining Labor's plans to revive Australian car manufacturing and coughing up our worst car buying decisions. But first, we're going to put our sensible hats on. Cameron, talk to us about the road safety news from this week. It's all a bit sad, really. Uh, So, the headline figure is that so far this year, in Victoria, 113 people have tragically lost their lives on our roads. It's very sad, but that number needs a little bit of context, and that is the fact that at this point last year, it was 76 people that had passed away. That's quite a big increase. It's it's double. Double, yes. It is is near enough, exactly 100% increase on last year. And so that obviously prompts a response. What is the difference? That What's happening? Uh, first off, the percentage increase is kind of skewed because last year was a record low in terms of uh, death toll. When compared to a five-year average, it's up about 27%. But I mean, hopefully, I mean, it might have been a record low, but surely that's the whole point of the exercise, isn't it? That every year should be a record low. Yes, it is, especially with all the money that's been put in the Towards Zero campaign and the TAC and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what this does point out, though, is that we are focusing on the wrong things because the areas that the biggest increase is coming is people not wearing seatbelts. Oh, dear. What yeah. is this, 1983? <laughs> yeah, That's like I, I thought we had gotten past that. And also uh, drug driving. It was found that people that had died were more likely to have drugs in their system than alcohol. So it seems like the drink driving campaign is working quite effectively. Drug driving, not so much. Okay, so before we get on to a bit of roundtable discussion... Has there been sort of a response from the authorities, from the people in charge? What are, the, what are they saying about this alarming statistic? There's a lot of hand-wringing about it. Uh, there is uh, an emergency uh, gathering of the masses of the greatest thinkers are going to get together later this month. Um, but I, think I thought one... that's what this podcast was. <laughs> Always, every month, yeah. greatest minds. Uh, but the one that kind of got me was the Victoria Police Assistant Commissioner, Mr. Stephen Leanne, I hope he's, I'm pronouncing that name properly, uh, who was talking to 3AW in Melbourne, and he said that the raise, rising death toll was a, quote, collective brain fade, and that, quote, they all just needed to think about it in terms of Victorian drivers. What? Oh, yeah, this is what strikes me. Um, if it's caused by things that are fairly easy to police, things like speed and so on, then they can formulate a cohesive response to this. But if it is absolutely brain-dead stuff like drugs and not wearing a seatbelt, how do you get through to these people? How can you communicate? I think the core thing is education. We have such poor driver education in Australia, and particularly when the entire road safety message is focused on do not speed, do not drink, and a little bit of don't use your phone. But it's just don't drink and don't speed and you're a good driver. There's no actual education around what is involved in everything else. And and while it is seatbelts and drug driving, which have increased, which are tragic, and there needs to be education around that, it's rural roads, which are attracting a lot of increase in deaths, which is, is people need to focus, people need to maintain attention. But Andy makes a good point, regardless of the... Uh, I mean, for instance, drug driving is already illegal. 
wearing driving without a seatbelt is already illegal. So therefore, if you have this, you know, relatively large or increase in people not doing that, how are you going to legislate around that? I think that's kind of what you're getting at. Like, you can't yeah. legislate stupidity. Like these things are already pretty obviously dangerous and pretty obviously stupid. Yet people, it's kind of like with the don't speed as well. You could put the speed limits to 30 k's an hour. The people who want to go out and do 200, 200 and crash on the eastern freeway are still going to go and do it. They're obviously yeah. not deterred by the deterrents that are in place. Yeah, I don't think you can in, in police and enforce your way out of this issue. This requires a significant rethink in how we deal with road safety in Australia and particularly Victoria because it's such a single-minded focus which is coming out of governments, police, TAC that we need to go beyond the core issue of don't break the law. Yeah. That That is the second step. The first step is let's train people how to drive mm. properly and how to think properly and respect driving. Absolutely. You've got to inculcate these attitudes to driving very, very young. Yes. And he, I mean, you've got the unique perspective of until, you know, relatively recently being in the UK. Is there, are there any differences or when you came to Australia, did you notice anything particularly strike you about the way we go about motoring and education? Yeah, you, know, you notice just strange little things. Like in the UK, if you're sitting in a right-hand slip lane, to, you, you're waiting to turn right, you're obviously going to turn right. Nobody sits there with their indicators on. Yet here, everyone sits with their indicators on. And if it's a two-lane one, you've then got no way to signal to the car that you're going to move from the left to the right lane because everyone's sitting there with their indicator on. And, and they do this religiously. Australians... They, that message has got through to them. Sit there with your indicator on. Yet, as soon as you pull onto the freeway, for example, lane discipline goes completely out the window. And you notice, especially in Victoria here, where there isn't an annual roadworthy, that so many people are driving at night with defective lights. Mm. Yeah, So many. And, it, and it's a killer. It's an absolute killer. And, and in, on, on country roads, you can be overtaking. Think, think that it's a distant motorbike, you know. Yeah. A kilometre up the road, and it's, you know, Winnebago, two hundred <laughs> metres away. And it's craziness. Yeah, and on on that indicating point, another one that. So I've recently trained my girlfriend how to drive, and and gone through that process, and telling her to put your indicator on early if you want to move. So often you see people want to change lanes, you can tell they want to change lanes from the way they're behaving in the lane, but there's no indicator on. The indicator is put on as a as I'm doing the process. Well, in yeah. Australia, they're called confirmators, yeah, not it, indicators. It's not used to literally indicate your intention. Like, yeah. it's in the name. That's right. That's no, right. but as Scott says, people put them on to confirm they're moving. Um, there's this slightly pig-headed thing here oh, where that's as, a soon good... as, as soon as you put your indicator on, people just pull up and block you out. That's so, a good point. I think the pig-headedness is the, the real thing. It's There's a complete lack of understanding and lack of respect for the art, skill, job, whatever you want to call it, of driving in this country. I mean, this Stephen Leanne, Stephen Lean, Stephen Leanne, apologies. Um, I'm sure he's a very good assistant commissioner for the state police, but he clearly has no idea about road safety because to say that it's simply a collective brain fade is just embarrassing. Like, no one on the roads in the vast majority, has any idea what they're doing. I wrote a story a little bit about this, so I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. Do it. I love it. We did. I've, we basically did a very simple poll. for the. We put it, on the, put it online, put a poll out there, and said, basically, how good a driver do you think you are? Just click 1 to 10, and more than, uh, more than 90% of those who... So more than 1,000 people uh, responded. More than 90% of those rated themselves a 7 or above with almost a quarter, 23%, saying they're a 10 out of 10. And it's indicative of the problem, I think, in Australia, in that 
everyone knows no one can drive, but everyone thinks it's not them. Like, mm. the number of people who are actually capable and highly capable of driving in this country would be a tiny percentage of the population. I mean, even amongst our own industry, there are people who are professionally tr- paid to drive and who aren't very good at it. Um, I, I dug up some interesting statistics in these uh, in this research. So the road toll has dropped dramatically. Seatbelts, drink driving, speed limits, all that's been very good. From 19... From 3,583 in 1976, by 2016, that had dropped to 1,292. Fantastic. Very big response. But between 1997... So in 1997, it's a bit tricky because there's varying amounts of figures for varying years. So in 1997, 1,970 people died on the roads. 21,519 were hospitalised. So by 2014, that number had dropped close to that 1,292. But... 35,552 had been hospitalised. So you've had a further further drop in the number of deaths. Fantastic. Great. But you've had an enormous increase in the, now, in the amount of hospitalisations, which suggests that more people are going... More people are having serious accidents. And I know the first thing that came back was, oh, well, there's more cars on the road. So more, more of them are going to run into each other. But per 100,000 people and per billion kilometres travelled the hospitalisation rates are still going up. Not as dramatically, obviously, because there are more cars, but still. So it suggests what I think anecdotally we all know from watching people on the road is that, okay, less people are dying because every car or a lot of cars now have ABS, ESP, uh, you know, 10, 12, 7 airbags, but more of them, you only have to go out on a, when, it, when it rains like today, there's a lot of cars running into each other. There. Also, in the 1970s, people were a lot tougher. And, uh, you know, you would you would crash your car, you would crush both of your legs, and you'd, you'd get out and try and walk it off, I think. That's I don't, right. I don't, I don't think still rock up for, there's yeah, no reason you couldn't rock up them for work the next day. Yeah, you wouldn't present yourself at A&E, would you? Are, are, are you seriously <laughs> suggesting that it's millennials that are ruining the road toll? That's exactly what I'm <laughs> suggesting, Cam, and I'm looking at you. <laughs> but, I mean, the whole... You're right, Cam, in that the whole... We're just going down the wrong path. I mean... I so noticed in your story that they wanted to do a crackdown on this 40, 40 kilometer an hour limit thing when you go past emergency services with their lights on. Everyone who has half a brain realizes that this is the most stupid, ill-thought-out road rule that's ever been introduced. And that's if, what they're going to blitz. I know, and that's what they're going to blitz. The fact that you're doing 110 kilometers an hour down the freeway with a truck 13 centimeters from your rear bumper, which is an issue in itself. He's probably been awake for 26 hours. And they want you to stop to 40 kilometres an hour immediately, otherwise you're going to get a ticket. Like, have you ever heard such nonsense? No, the problem is, if, if you are overtaking a truck at the legal limit, you that overtake can take a fair while. Absolutely. Time is no, to there, danger. There is no way that you can see, often, a car on the yeah. inside lane. So... What are you going to do? It, it, yeah, that's a really tough one to police. As, as, as a final But even point. the police hate it. Like, the police <laughs> have come out and said, this is going to... You know, we're gonna. They've had skidding cars almost wipe people out because they've gone full emergency stop because they don't want to get a ticket. So even the police realise it's a dumb idea. It's it's it is a lot of bashing your head against a uh, a wall with this uh, this issue. As a final point, I think uh, contributing to this, obviously we're, we're going on for a little bit, is that in Australia you get your license and that's it. And obviously yep. habits develop over time. And so everyone is told you are a good driver because you have your license and you haven't lost your license from speeding as their skills and their habits deteriorate over time. And it's this habitual confirmation within themselves that I am not 
the bad person in this situation because I've been confirmed that I have my license and I don't speed, so I'm good. There are so many other factors that need to be considered and we do not tell people enough that you are a crap driver Mm. and you need to educate yourself. Um, And one final point is that, you know, sometimes you can get accused of coming from a kind of slightly elitist European thing where we say, you know, Australia doesn't get it. But the actual death toll on Australian roads per 100,000 kilometres travelled isn't actually that much different to Western European nations, is it? We have no. we, we have quite a good uh, road toll in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Obviously, any death on the road is too much. That is yeah. true. And while it is an, a positive thing to aim for zero, we also need to realise that zero is not possible without completely eliminating driving altogether. And even then, yeah. But we do need to reduce the number, and it's always good to do that, but we need to focus on doing it in a positive way that improves driving standards, not just enforces bad habits. Okay, well, I'll wrap this up with another figure. So in 2016, I think it was, road trauma cost a little over $30 billion. That was the figure put on it by, you know, hospitalization, deaths, etc. So $30 billion. So on average, about 220,000 new drivers arrive on Australian roads each year. So you could give every new driver a $100,000 education, $100,000 education, and you'd still... That would still be a much, much lower figure than what Australia spends on road trauma each year. So for all those people saying, oh, it's too expensive, you can't do it, it's too hard, think about that. Yeah, it's too expensive not to. Exactly. 100%. Right. Agreed. Having been sensible, let's get on to something a little bit more fun, a little bit more jovial. Race cars. Mm -hmm. Um, So last week we were meant to talk about it, sort of fill off the agenda. So a couple of us have been lucky enough to spend some time behind the wheel of a couple of race cars recently, which is pretty amazing, pretty amazing opportunity, but it provides a good opportunity to talk how they differ from road cars. So, Cam, why don't you open the bidding? I know I started with you last time, but I know you're very excited. So, recently you drove the i30 TCR car. So, for someone who maybe doesn't really know about cars necessarily, how would you sum up the differences between a car that sort of looks like an i30N, but is a race car version of it? Uh, the, 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 the most obvious thing is obviously bodywork. You've got some wider arches, some big wings and that kind of thing. But the massive difference, I think, comes from, and where your massive difference in speed comes from, is the tyres and the aerodynamics and the weight. So the tyres, slick tyres, they're much wider, much stickier, huge amounts of grip. Uh, when I was driving the i30N TCR car, I think I talked previously about TCR in general, mm-hmm. um, I was actually lucky enough to back-to-back it with the equivalent road car. Mm-hmm. And it was a very clear indicator on grip limitation. With the i30N road car, it is a very capable thing, but you can very easily go into a corner with too much speed and just get served buckets and buckets and buckets of understeer. Mm-hmm. It's all about speed management, whereas with the slick tyres on a race car, you, it just hooks. It just grips. It's just <laughs> truly phenomenal. And you're like, oh yeah, this is a lot of grip on your second lap, and then on your third, your fourth, your fifth, it's excessively, the bar just keeps rising as Mm. the tires get warmer and it is so much more than you are prepared for if it's your first time on a slick tire it is just phenomenal uh like the in terms of power it's not a huge amount of difference like it is obviously quicker in a straight line because of weight and a little bit more power it's 257 kilowatts compared to 202 yeah so it's not a it's not hasn't got double the power no it is all in the tire and the aero and while the aero is not f1 f3 levels 
like wings and slicks, it's still enough to you you feel it. You feel yeah. the hand of God yeah. on your back. So Andy, have you um, snuggled behind the wheel of a couple of competition cars any time? Yeah, a few of them. Not not as not as many as uh, some motoring journalists. But then I'm I'm quite a big chap, so that's what I tell myself that I could have been a contender if I if I hadn't have been six foot four. But in fact, it was because. Uh, I'm too slow and too much of a tightwad to if get into <laughs> racing. If there was a sport which combined rugby league and F1, you would have been on the on top of the podium. And, uh, yeah, I remember I drove um, a Formula Four car. Got the opportunity to drive that at Sepang, and that was that was a wholly dispiriting experience because the day was about 42 degrees and 100% humidity, and you're standing around in your race suit, and you've kind of by the time they strapped you into this thing, you've developed a trench grundle kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it, it's, but the thing with thing with the car is it, it is so small in there, and um, I'm quite sort of long in the body. And I tried to try to sort of bodgy down into the car to get my shoulders underneath the the bodywork to make sure your head wasn't the roll hood. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so I think, yeah, I think I've got this. You know, I'm down in the car, so they start doing the belts up around you, and um. I realised I was slumped so far down forward on the seat that there was nothing kind of behind my lower back. And I, d- I didn't register this as a problem uh, until I got to the first corner and, and stomped on the brakes. And then you, you've got, you know, 110 kilos suspended off your nether regions. <laughs> and, it was, and then when you get on the get on the throttle hard out of the corner you slide back into that seat and you know in the next braking zone you're sliding forward about 20 centimeters at very high speed and this and is why andy doesn't have children yeah it's unmanageable I, so, uh, I had a not too dissimilar experience with my tcr car so the morcom family were very kind to offer us the the day to to drive this car and uh nathan morcom is the regular driver of that car and he's quite a uh, race car driver spec person, I would describe Little him as. jockey. Yeah, he's, he's small, very fit. I am not small and not very fit, and I did not fit perfectly in his size uh, seat, which made it a bit uncomfortable. But uh, yeah, on race cars compared to road cars, I think there's this cliche of, oh, it's a race car for the road when it comes to, I know, Lotuses and yeah. KTMs and that kind of thing. But it's just truly not. And I've, I've got some numbers. Oh, some to, numbers. Ooh, hard uh, data. Look at hard this. data. And so... Great. Never seen before. Yes, yes. To keep it topical, uh, Honda has brought out Jensen Button and had a crack at the Bathurst lap record that didn't exist in a Type R. Mm -hmm. So Jensen Button, fantastic driver. His time in a Type R production spec was a 2 minute 35 around Bathurst. It's pretty quick. Yep. So a Focus RS production race car, which is essentially just slightly stripped. It's got some better brakes and a roll cage, it's not even got slicks or any power mm-hmm. differences, is a whole 10 seconds quicker down yeah. the road. That is that is a massive difference. It is a massive then difference. you step up into an R8, which has been unrestricted from BOP, and it is 35 seconds down the road. The magnitude of, of difference in speed is just unfathomable. It's the difference in the experience as well, actually. Like I drove at Sandown, I recently drove the AMG GTR, so that's, as you said, like it's the road racer. And then I, a couple of weeks later, I drove the AMG GT4, which is basically meant to be a production spec road car. Not, not quite a road car with a roll cage in it, but, you know, it's fairly fairly close to the standard car. Still got the standard car suspension, apart from the dampers. Um, you know, it's not hasn't got massive wings on it. But the, they were just chalk and cheese. Like mm. in the difference in lap time, apparently they're not that much different. They're about four seconds, five seconds far, um, different at somewhere like Winton. But the experience is so much different. Like 
You could just belt the GT4 as hard as you wanted, and it just didn't break a sweat. 100%. You could go as late as you wanted on the brakes. The ABS was there to help you, not hinder you. There's, um, and then just the way it, it feels like, and I think the biggest difference is, like after maybe four or five laps, the GTR is starting to show its strain. It's like the brakes, the tires, and that's fair enough. It's a road car, but... The GT4, which doesn't look that much different, can go around for 50, 100 mm. laps and not wow. break a sweat. Am I right yeah. in thinking that due to the regulations that that AMG GT4 car actually develops less power than the GTR road it car? It does. So it's got... Um, well, I drove it in its uncorked spec, which was 375 kilowatts, and the road car is 430. And you do notice it's about 15 k's down on the straights. But in fact, they've got, I think, nine different boost maps in it because they've got a race against other cars like a okay. Porsche Cayman GT4, KTM GT4 that aren't quite as racy. So in Asia, for instance, that car competes with 295 kilowatts, 135 kilowatts less than the... Uh, 135 kilowatts less than the actual same road car. So it's not actually fast in a straight line, but as Cam says, makes up all its time under brakes, in the corners, and traction. It's the brakes. Like, yeah. you, until you either get a lap with a proper racing car driver in anything or drive a race car, you don't understand how much time is made up in braking. Yeah. It is just phenomenal. And that is the most shocking thing when you get a hot lap of any car anywhere is when a racing car driver that knows what they're doing stands on the brakes, it feels like your eyeballs are going to come out of your face. And that's yeah. going back to the driving education thing. That mm-hmm. People go and do a, go to a defensive driving course and they say, do a full ABS stop. And people can't even activate the ABS. They think they're going to break the car or anything like that. So, yeah, it's the it's the big thing. Whether on gravel or in tarmac. or I've never been in a proper wings and slicks car, like maybe like an LMP3 car, but I can imagine it's even more dramatic. Cool. Yeah. I've been in a, a radical SR8 with James Winslow, who was trying to scare me, <laughs> and it was just eye-opening, literally. <laughs> yeah, I was in an LMP car at uh, at Sepang with El Bamba, and within three laps, you actually do have that, oh my God, I can't hold my head up straight. Yeah, anymore. wow. Yeah. Your, your neck muscles just fatigue. And the first lap out, you think, like, I know he's a professional, but he's clearly forgotten how to drive, because he, he should have braked roughly 100 metres ago. And even that would have been a bit dramatic. But anyway, let's move on. We can you can obviously read about our experiences on the various which car platforms, whichcar.com.au slash wheels and slash motor. Uh, and we also have a TV show. A TV show. Can you believe it? It's Great. quite magnificent. It is superlative. Uh, this Sunday, so after your Mother's Day lunch has settled down in your tummy, sit down for some which car TV. We've got a feature on the sports car Little Brothers, like a Mustang EcoBoost, Alfa Giulia Veloce, a Cayman rather than a 911, and a Ferrari 812 Superfast film, and a battle of two V6 Utes, Mercedes X-Class, X-Class, that's a hard word to say, and VW Amarok Ultimate. So back onto the political sphere, Andy, Labor wants to revive the Australian manufacturing industry. Now what's going, to happen? What's going on here? Yeah, I'm I'm slightly puzzled by this one because uh, we hear that Labor are planning to inject fifty-seven million, was it? Yep. Into uh, reviving manufacturing, car manufacturing in Australia. Now, fifty-seven million dollars is a lot if you win it on tax lotto. Is it enough to revive the Australian car manufacturing industry? Um, I would say it's somewhat shy of that. Um, <laughs> If if you consider that in <laughs> putting it mildly <laughs> in November um, 2015, um, Sake Motor, the people who make MGs, they commissioned a new plant in um, 
Chonburi province in Thailand. And bear in mind that Thailand is generally held to be about four times cheaper than manufacturing things in Australia. Um, and they put into that 1.8 billion Australian dollars. Yes. That's what so, I was thinking when I was looking at if, if you're not, And that's the thing. You're just building one factory for yeah. that. So if you want to revive the whole manufacturing industry, it did seem a bit like they were a factor of 100 short. Like 5.7 yeah. billion, you'd go... Okay, yeah, good this work. has got them. This has got some legs behind it. Fifty-seven million dollars is like the design budget for a door handle. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, the MQB ML, MLB Evo platforms by mm-hmm. uh, Volkswagen Group uh, were rumored to cost around eight point five billion Aussie dollars to develop. Um, so the cost of designing cars, developing platforms, and just building plants is really expensive. Jaguar. Uh, spent um, 50 million on tooling alone for one of their That's just the bits to make the actual car. Yeah. Yeah. So, Cam, what do they want to make with this $57 million? They want it all to be EVs. It's all part of their plan to have 50% of new cars sold in 2030 to be electric, as we have talked previously on the podcast. Uh, So, it's all about labours. We want to we want blue collar jobs in the EV. It is an admirable. It's a great thing for them to, to want. They probably just haven't either worded it properly or got enough money for it. So it seems to be up there with his eight to ten minute recharge time for an EV thing. It's like okay, you might be might, might want to talk to your advisors about that. Yeah. See, the thing is, so that this is the actual specific wording that they use. So it's a uh, fund to quote research and development initiative to develop an electric car industry in Australia, focusing on creating EV design and manufacturing jobs. And it's that last bit that really grabbed the headlines, right? Manufacturing mm. jobs. Yep. But I feel like that's being tacked on at the last minute to grab headlines, whereas the rest of it, $57 million, seems like a reasonable amount. If, you, okay. if you're focusing on design and stuff, and yeah. you know, if, you, if you're investing in Tritium, who's a Brisbane-based company that builds some of the best fast chargers in the world, $57 million, great amount. If you're going to put a little bit of money towards Ford, Toyota, Holden that have design studios in Australia mm-hmm. for them to work specifically on electric cars, fantastic. If you're going to put it to Ford and Holden to develop EVs at their proving ground, great. If you want manufacturing jobs, it's just way off the mark. Like yeah. the last car yeah. that was built from scratch in Australia was the VE Commodore. Mm-hmm. It cost a billion dollars. And that was in when? 20... 20, 2006. Well, you know, in the, in the probably the decade leading up to 2006. Yeah. 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 In, the, in, the, in, the last, in the last 10 years of manufacturing in Australia, when there was Ford Holden and Toyota left, they took about $4.1 billion of, of government investment mm-hmm. to stay afloat. And now government investment in, in manufacturing is the norm, not the exception. Yeah. And so it does require money. But to put that number into perspective, that's about $410 million a year that was put into those things over a decade. Yep. So $57 million seems a bit naff. For, you're not going to get mass-produced vehicles for $57 million. You might get a boutique manufacturer. The trouble, the trouble is, as, as even talking about Andy's figures, what needs to be more than that in Australia because otherwise we're going to end up with the same old problems we had before. Yep. High cost of wages, high cost to make things in Australia. So on top of that, you're going to need you know tax incentives. You're going to need... Government subsidies, you're going to need all that sort of stuff to yeah. even make it... You can't just... if you Even if you did put the money in and revive it, you're going to have to then go above and beyond. Otherwise, you're going to end up in the same part of the circle we ended up with two years ago. Yeah, the only the only toe back in there that you can see is with, like, 
a throwback to to where we started with with CKD builds, completely knocked down builds of EV skateboards in mm. Australia. But I even you were there, say we should build the Morris Marina again. <laughs> P seventy six. But uh, e- even then, it, it's it's hard to see why. Why would you? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that money is better off put into, and as as I talked to a couple of manufacturers about this, i.e. Toyota, Ford, and Holden, mm-hmm. uh, Holden didn't want to comment at all. Ford said, let's get some more details. And Toyota essentially said, put that money into manufacturing. In m- many more words than that, and a bit yeah. more complicated, but that was reading between the lines what they wanted. They want, put it into the infrastructure, put it into making sure that charging is there. Yeah. And that is what that money needs to go towards. That'd it's be, a, yeah. Good point. $57 million for EVs in Australia. Fantastic. That's great. For manufacturing, oh, that's not the best use of it. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, if, if that's your goal, to get to 50% EV by 2030, yeah, the best use of that $57 million would be to sort out the charging network, char- yeah. charging, charging infrastructure in Australia. Chuck it at Tritium. Chuck yeah. all of it at Tritium, yeah. is what I say. <laughs> I'm just sensing a bit of a Queensland Homer thing here, No, I just, Cameron. Well, that, is, that is a nice link, but I, I just <laughs> think that if we got this... I didn't even know about them until last year when a when a manufacturer took us for a tour of the place, mm-hmm. and they have been around for well over a decade building manufacturers, and they a lot of their charges go off to Germany. So why is yeah. all of their stuff going to Germany when we want EVs in Australia and infrastructure is so desperately needed? It's just a bit of a sad story for a world-leading product to be in Australia sold overseas. Absolutely. Well, I'm going to go over 30 minutes and annoy Dan Gardner immensely, but hey, it's my train set this week. <laughs> So let's wrap up with a quick chat about worst car purchasing decisions or ideas. Because Cam and I haven't... I mean, Cam's only bought one car, although that was an Alpha 147, wasn't it? So that was a pretty terrible no, that decision. Was, that, was, that was my girlfriend's oh, decision. Okay. <laughs> okay, she made that. Uh, yes, what? we can... That was a disastrous, Cam. We love that. Okay, so let's start with that. Cam, you bought an Alpha 147 <laughs> yeah. for your girlfriend to learn to drive in. <laughs> Therein yeah. lies the problem. Don't you yeah. love her? I, uh, yeah. Do that's... you dislike her that much? <laughs> It also had a seller speed just to make oh! things even better. And predictably, the thing carked it. It She was on her L plates and she was actually doing her first drive without me with a friend that was going to teach her for the, for the day, which was a big nervous moment for me. And then about 45 minutes later, I get this phone call from her, which is not when I was expecting her to reach her destination. So instantly I'm worried. And she goes, the car's just stopped. Just they're on a hill. It's seized in first. Truly awful. So she's got a Volvo now. Much better. Uh, but my first purchase was a Toyota Corolla. It was lovely. Got me through uni. Do not regret it at all. My worst idea was I was going to buy a Toyota Cressida and put a 1J in it. Doesn't which, sound like a terrible idea. Which, yeah, which initially... Which you've set, got a whole heap of money to set fire to? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But I was on... Uh, a university student budget, which is... <laughs> <laughs> so you're going to try and do it yourself. <laughs> yeah, which is four packets of me going and a half-opened VB. Yeah. So it was not a, a great idea. So Dan... Um, Dan. You're not, you're not Dan, you're Andy. Dandy. All, so Dandy. All Englishmen are the same. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so Dandy, um, what were your... What are some of your howlers over the years? There have been a few. I've had, I've had quite a few cars, so... Um, it stands to reason that some of them are going to be better than others. How many of them um, have you lost? A few. <laughs> <laughs> um, Toyota MR2 Turbo. This this was ostensibly a pretty good car. It had two aftermarket parts, an alarm which drained the battery, <laughs> and alloy wheels which were porous. So the car would, would, would sit on its rims, and then you couldn't charge it up. Um, 
reinflate the tires. That got stolen. I never sold that. How um, did they steal it? I don't know. It just disappeared in the night. Um, an Audi, an Audi Quattro. <laughs> mysterious. Yeah, I had an Audi Quattro. Um, and I was driving that really fast and the cam belt snapped. Um, I left it at the Audi uh, repair place for them to look at. And somebody attacked it with an axe and stripped <laughs> it. Axe. Yes, it had three axe strikes on it. A jilted lover, perhaps. Um, oh, like a Peugeot Group B yeah, driver. That got scrapped. But I think the, the car that takes the biscuit for me was a Toyota Corolla Verso that I bought for my wife. She was after a Wasn't practical... seven seat? A seven no, seat Corolla? It, it was a five seater, but it, it looked like a potato. Um, <laughs> and she was quite keen for a practical car. So I thought, well, you know, it's a Toyota Corolla. What could possibly go wrong? And I bought it at an auction. And I was driving home, and you know, when you buy a new car, you, 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 your senses are, are hyper tuned, aren't they? And you're going home, and you're, what's that I hear? I was driving home thinking, is that smell oh, and uh, I looked in the back seats and there was like this dog hair all over it and I thought oh this someone's had a wet dog in here and so I pulled over and at some point on the way home I opened the rear hatch and there was a dead dog in the boot oh my god <laughs> No. Yes, I bought this car at auction with a dead dog <laughs> in the boot. Did um, you get a refund? <laughs> no. <laughs> what? And I never got the dog smell out of it. I, I just, I just cleaned it religiously for weeks. I don't remember seeing that feature on the Toyota Corolla Verso brochure. <laughs> no, I'm truly horrified. <laughs> no, oh no. No. Um, it's not as bad as a friend who bought a, a Kawasaki GPZ 600R. Friend I went to um, uni with, and he was taking you it put home. A dead dog on that, surely? No, no. He was, he was, he was riding this thing home he got he was really excited at how fast it was i was actually sitting at home like some weeks later when i when i realized what happened watching one of those awful um police camera action shows oh yes and uh, i recognized him from the police car (laughs) and he rode this bike at about like 220 230 k's with this police car right up his chuff and uh he was riding back to his mum's with his <laughs> washing, as, as all students do, to take their washing home. And uh, the so commentary was... drying it. Yeah, the commentary was, look at this idiot, like, <laughs> riding at 230 kilometres an hour, whatever. And um, he rode at such a speed that his rucksack kind of delaminated <laughs> and it just showered the police car with soiled underpants. <laughs> and, <things. laughs> and uh, yeah, he had to sell that instantly because... Uh, uh, he got in a lot of trouble, so on, that was a bad purchase. On the benefits of, of knowing the history of the vehicle you're purchasing, I had a good friend that bought a Yamaha R6, once again, a motorbike. Uh, rode it home, parked it outside his house. Next couple of days, he had some guys looking at it very closely, and he was like, oh, what, what's going on here? It's a bit awkward. You know, these these, these are guys clearly look, checking his bike out. And they come back the next day with a truck, and they start taking his bike. So he comes out and says, whoa, 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 why are you taking my bike? And it turns out the bike had been stolen from these gentlemen that were now re-stealing the bike. And so he had to pay for the bike twice. Oh, no. (laughs) Yeah. Still better than that than getting chopped up. Yeah, no, it's not great. But, uh, yeah. He got a good bike out of it, though. (laughs) For all of four days. (laughs) Oh, well. Well... Have you had a terrible car purchasing decision? I bet you have. If you have, let us know at www.whichcar.com.au. Check it out for all the latest automotive news and reviews. Check us out on all the social medias, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at whichcarau. And we'll see you next week. Have fun. Ciao for now.